You guys ready? Got a fun one today. Thought I'd spice it up. Should Christians move on from their past? Or should Christians remember their past? Or is there a third option? That's today's study. All right, guys, let's pray for this morning. Morning, Candy. Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. I am blessed beyond all measure because of who you are. And I'm blessed to know these people. Thank you for this wonderful community. Thank you for this family. Thank you for what you are building by your grace. And I know that we're going to see um, greater things, Lord. Lord, I ask you, please, to just lead this morning. Come and have your way. Come and give me the words to say that I might honor you with, with equipping people in the truth. Help me to do that well, Father. Help me to declare your word boldly and accurately and clearly and honorably and, and lovingly, Lord. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and with your love for your people. pray that you would keep the trolls far from this time. Give us wisdom and discernment on when to mute and block and when to allow people to stay and hear them out, Lord. Give us discernment. And I ask that you would help me to speak and think clearly. Clarity is a huge prayer of mine, Lord, and strength and energy. And that I would be overtaken by your love and your spirit for the good of your people and for your glory. Because we're not promised another day. We're not promised tonight. Any one of us could stand before you between now and then. And so, Lord, um, I take this seriously. Build your church, Lord, as you do. Strengthen your people the way that only you can. And would you encourage us with your word? Help me to only say that which is true and keep me dependent on you. As I always pray, Lord, I pray for dependence. I don't want to grow um, dependent on my experience. I don't want to find confidence in my planning and preparation. I, I want to find confidence in you alone. And so I look to you as the only one who can produce fruit from this time. Would you make much of yourself, Jesus, and open our eyes to who you are? We do want to see you. We long to know you. In Jesus' name, in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Maria. Guys, we have a question we need to answer today. The question is, should Christians, believers, move on from their past entirely? Should believers dwell in their past? Or is there a healthy way to balance the two? Is there a healthy way to look on towards the future while allowing my present life to be informed by my past? Is there a healthy way to do that? And I, um, I think the scripture is going to answer that question. So you're going to need to stick around to hear everything that Ephesians 2 has to say. Okay. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2. This is right after Paul says, Hey, you know, the Father, God put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And he goes right into this, right into this. Jesus fills all things. And, by the way, 
talking to the Ephesian church collectively, y'all were dead. <laughs> y'all were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. Okay? He's not assuming the Ephesian church is currently living in sin. He's saying you used to live in sin and you were dead because you lived in sin. Sin killed you. You were spiritually dead. That doesn't sound nice. Yeah, spiritual death isn't supposed to be nice. Separation from God who is life and love and perfection and holiness and, and you know, satisfaction and everything we need in life. Separation from Him is the definition of death. Okay, so if we're going to define spiritual death correctly, it's to be cut off from the source of eternal life. It's to have no relationship with your Creator. You are by definition, when you are separated from life, you are outside the realm, okay, of what Jesus calls abundant life. There's no life outside of God. So if you're cut off by sin and you're living in sin, which separates you from God, there's nothing for you outside of God except death, okay? Following the course of this world. Why, is Paul, why does Paul feel the need to remind the Ephesian church collectively what they once were? In light of what Christ has done, why does he feel the need to do that? Well, we're going to see in a minute, okay? Look at the different uh, characteristics of the believer who, before they came to Christ, used to be dead in sin. In other words, look at all the different descriptions of the unbeliever who is separated from God and their creator by sin. Look at the descriptions. You were dead in your sin in which you once walked. Your lifestyle was governed by sin. You were following the course of this world. Apparently, this world system, okay, which is in opposition to God, is actually going a specific direction. There's a flow. There's a course. There's a path that the world is following. And the world represents an ideology that is anti-Christ. Okay? The world doesn't just refer to the people and humanity. The world refers to a way of thinking that is contrary to God and His ways that is opposed in rebellion to God. So the world at large, unbelievers separated from God are going a specific direction. There's a course and they're headed right into death. And we used to be on that one way track to death. Okay. Following, here's why we were following the course of this world. Because we were following the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. John chapter 12. This is what Jesus says before he's about to be arrested and crucified and resurrect. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Jesus, apparently something is going to happen uh, through Jesus' work that is a judgment against the world. While at the same time reconciling, redeeming, and rescuing the world. Okay. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There is a ruler of this world system. The culture and society at large. The ways of the world. The ideologies um, that are majority running our culture. Are governed by a spirit. A prince of the power of the air. Who Jesus calls the ruler of this world currently. It doesn't mean God has no authority or power. But legally. Okay. Per the separation in the garden and the handing over of authority, the devil and the powers of darkness have authority in the world system and in the culture. 
That's why Jesus pulls us out of the darkness and out of that world system, redeems us into the light so that we can be sent back in as agents of light to rescue people in darkness, but also because Jesus is going to recreate the world and bring a new um, new heavens and a new earth. And we're fitted for that when we're pulled out of the darkness. Jesus is not going to fix the world system. He's going to completely replace it with his kingdom. Okay, So the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Well, those who are anti-Christ. Those who are opposed to God and his ways. Who do not believe in the gospel. Who reject the gospel. Who refuse to obey the truth of God's word. These are the sons of disobedience. Those who are separated by sin. What makes them sons of disobedience? Because they inherit the nature of really the one they're following. The ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working within them, which is the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of the age. That way of darkness that is, again, opposed to God is at work in people who are separated from God. Okay? So what we have to understand is, my man clarifies, the devil has no authority over God's people, but he has authority over this world system that is outside the kingdom. That's why it's our job to go and advance the kingdom of light into the darkness. To actually run in there with the light of Christ and the boldness and the love of God to reach people. But we had to be pulled out of that first. But what Paul has the Ephesian church doing is he has them recalling what they used to be. And it's very intentional. You're going to see in a minute. You were dead. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, you followed the course of this world, which is on a one-way track to hell. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, you followed the prince of the power of the air. In other words, you were under the influence and the guiding force of Satan himself. Thanks, Paul. You know, you were a son of disobedience along with the rest, following the spirit that is opposed to Christ. Thank you, Paul. I don't, I don't need to be beaten down anymore emotionally. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Why don't you encourage me a little bit? Okay, well, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Like before Jesus, your flesh, your nature that is opposed to God has passions and cravings and desires that are dishonorable to God, okay? And we either tame that in submission to God and in, in faith and trusting in the gospel or we're overrun by those passions. And apparently, we all once lived in those passions. It's not like... Every now and then I gave in to my sinful cravings and my passions. It's like, no, your life before Christ was governed and ruled by whatever passion and, and craving and desire your flesh had. You used to carry out the desires of the body. And you go, what's wrong with the desires of my body? What's wrong with the passions of my flesh? Well, the problem is that they control you. The problem is that they lead you into destruction and into death, and into what dishonors God. The problem is they destroy society. There's so many problems with a, a nature that is opposed to God and His ways that benefit humanity. Okay, there's a lot wrong with that. We used to serve, like, as our master, we willingly laid down our will and all of our resources and everything to the passions of our flesh. I just want pleasure. I just want entertainment. I just want satisfaction. I just want to fill every craving and every desire I have. I want to do whatever I feel like doing. This is the mantra of our culture, right? Follow your heart. Do whatever you feel like doing. What if my feelings aren't true? 
What if my feelings lead me into what destroys society and myself in the process? What if, you know, my emotions aren't always a, an accurate compass in, in terms of following into what is good? I can't live life following the, the desires of my flesh and following whatever my heart says is true. But we used to. We used to. We used to carry out the desires of the body. In other words, the guiding force for your life, your, your compass, your navigation system, or how to go through life, it was your flesh. And who was governing and ruling and, and manipulating that compass of yours, that heart of yours? Well, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. The devil and his demons themselves had people who used to be separated from God, used to, used to have them on strings, playing them like a fiddle, playing to every desire and fancy of their heart, and going, it's good, whatever you want is good, whatever you desire is good. Really? Okay, live life like that. Everything you feel like doing, everything you desire, everything you want and crave, go after it. Tell me how that ends up for you. I'm just saying Christ comes to rescue us from that way of destruction, from that slavery to the flesh. He comes and rescues us from the passions of our flesh. But we used to live in it. It's not like every now and then on the weekends. It's no, your life was ruled by the whimsies of your flesh and your body and your mind. I'll tell you what, the body and the mind here come together to form what you might call the fleshly nature. The fleshly nature right here, it's represented by not just the body, but the mind that is opposed to God and the mind that is in opposition to Jesus. Eventually, the body will follow that, right? And we were, now watch this, we were by nature children of wrath. Now, if this offends you, whatever, <laughs> if this excites you about what God has done for you, that's the point. Good, thumbs up. You're on the right track. The point of this is to expose everything you used to be so that you value and appreciate everything you are now in Christ. Everything that we are now in Christ is in direct opposition to what we used to be without Him. Dead in sin, separated from God, following every craving and sinful desire my flesh had to give me, enslaved to the power of the enemy, Satan himself, following his influence and his guiding, doing whatever it is that metaphorically my father the devil would tell me to do. That was before Christ. Okay, and we were by nature children of wrath. Now, he's not saying, uh, he used to just live like children of wrath. At the core which influenced the life, you were by nature children of wrath. It was your very essence, is that you were tainted and stained by sin. It doesn't mean you were no less uh, uh, made in the image of God. It doesn't mean you were less in the image of God. That's what I'm trying to say. The image of God, you were still you know, walking around as ambassadors, as representatives of God, image bearers, but we couldn't do that well until Jesus restores our image, changes our nature, and gives us a new heart and mind and a new way of life to walk in. Now, there's so much to unpack here. We follow the passions of our flesh, 
we carried out the desires of our body and our mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. Now, I, won't, I don't think it's, hey, because you followed your desires, you were children of wrath. It's because you are children of wrath. Because you're in a broken world where your, your nature is stained by sin, you carried out the desires of your body and your mind. It followed your nature. So if God's going to change your life, first he has to change your nature. Children of wrath? That seems pretty offensive. Go in the streets, grab a megaphone, and say, if you don't know Christ, you're a child of wrath. That's a very strong statement, okay? Like the rest of mankind. Wow, Paul, thanks for the encouragement. Thanks for reminding me what I used to be without Christ. I used to be a child of wrath. In other words, I was what you might say in Genesis 3, a, 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 the seed of the serpent. I followed in the ways of Satan. I inherited his ways, his rebellion, and by nature, I inherited his own, which is the nature of darkness, which is the nature of steal, kill, and destroy, fulfill every craving and desire, be in opposition to God. That was my nature, okay? Which made me in opposition to God, okay? But also, because I'm separated by sin, I'm under the penalty of sin. And a lot of people will go, the penalty for sin is the just, righteous wrath of God against darkness and evil. Now, that's one way to explain it. I tend to not use the word wrath because of all the cultural baggage that comes attached to it. What I do say is, you are not fitted for God's presence. Your sin separates you, and there is consequence for your sin. There is a penalty for your rebellion. And it's called separation from the one who is life, who is love, who is everything you're made for, who is light and goodness. You're cut off from him. That's your consequence. It's called spiritual death. So by nature, you're under the wrath or the separation or the penalty of your sin, just like the rest of mankind. That was our past. That was our past. Now, if there's any theology that says, never bring up your past. This would seem to push back against that a little bit. Now, I'm not saying live in your past, stay in your past, stick your head in your past. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there are moments where it is helpful to look back from where I came from and to see where I am now and to also see where God's bringing me in His grace. What he's promised me. You know, this reminds me of the story, and we'll get the whole reason Paul builds this. And he's not done. He's not done humbling the Ephesian community by reminding them what they used to be so they appreciate what they have now. He's not done. But this does remind me of the woman who burst into the Pharisee's house, starts, you know, um, washing Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair and the Pharisee looking. Ugh. If Jesus was a prophet, he would know this woman's a sinner and wouldn't let her touch him. Ugh. And then Jesus essentially gives a parable and says, look, he who is forgiven much loves much. And he exposes the Pharisee in his own house. 
by saying, look, Pharisee, I think his name's Simon. Look, buddy, you pulled me into your house. You didn't even do what was customary. Uh, you didn't show any manners, any kind of love and, and hospitality. You didn't do what was the bare minimum. This woman has come in here as a stranger and done like above and beyond, washing my feet with her tears and her hairs. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah, she's been forgiven much. That's why she loves much. But you, yeah, you've been forgiven little, at least in your own mind. There's not a lot of sin for me to forgive. And that's why you love little. So there's something about, biblically, an awareness of my own sinfulness, which brings a new level of appreciation for the love God has shown me. They say like this, when you share the gospel, you shouldn't just share the good news, and you shouldn't just share the bad news. You should share both. What makes the good news good is that there was bad news before. What makes the bad news bad is that there's better news to fix the bad news. So there's bad news, which is we're separated by sin. We're cut off from God. We are hopeless and without God in the world. We are dead in our trespasses. That's sad. I can't do anything to get back to my creator and restore relationship. The good news, see how the bad news makes way for the good? If I tell you you're dead in sin, you can't get to heaven, and your good works mean nothing to God, that should do something in you to say, I... So what do I do? And I go, I'm glad you asked. You, you can't do anything. But God's done everything. And he's called you to believe and trust and take refuge in his son. That's it. There's, a, there's something about knowing how dark I could be or how evil I used to be that brings me a new level of appreciation for what God has done for me now. We as believers, we get this spiritual fog, right? We get, I don't know, spiritual dementia, short-term memory loss. Either way, we forget where we came from. We forget what we used to be. Like we forget where we would have been without him. We forget where we were headed. And how we lived and what I, the, the reality of my old life, we forget all that because we get so familiar with the now. And then when you grow familiar with something, if you're not careful, you can begin to take that for granted. And then you begin walking around like you deserve all that God has done for you. Like you're entitled to him coming down and save you. Of course he should come and save me. Look at me. You know, of course God should come down. I'm his image bearer. I'm his creation. If he didn't save me, like, he's the problem. Now, you're the problem for thinking that. You and I are entitled to nothing. If we deserve anything, here's what you deserve. By nature, children of wrath, you deserve to be cut off from God in eternal darkness. I don't want to get to a place where I take for granted what I used to worship God for. I don't want to get to that place. If the gospel doesn't periodically bring you to your knees in tears, not saying that's an indication in and of itself that something's wrong, but I would look at that and go, maybe meditate a little more on what he's done. Maybe seek him a little more fervently, with a little more passion, with the intent to really know what he's done for you. Maybe, maybe pursue a desire and a longing for his love a little more passionately, because you've grown stale, 
and complacent and lazy and I'm entitled. You're entitled to nothing. But what God has done for us, as we're going to see in the next section, is a free gift. Gift implies I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't work for it. I didn't achieve it. I did nothing. Someone gave it to me. That's what God has done. So I, I deserve separation, wrath. I deserve spiritual death. That's what I deserve. God comes in and he goes, here's everything you don't deserve that is good. And my son worked for it. Amen. And we go, wow. And that wow dies down if you don't fuel that fire periodically. If you don't tend to the fire and stir that thing up daily and remind yourself of what he's done, over time, you start to lose love and passion and you grow stale. You grow cold and familiar and this is ordinary. You weren't always here. You weren't always alive. You weren't always like commun in communion with the Father. You didn't always have the Spirit of God. You were separated. You were cut off. You just did whatever you wanted and wandered in the darkness and followed Satan into death. That's where you were. That's where you were. And we so easily forget. I don't want to look to my past. I'm just looking to my future. Bro, your future is connected to your past. You understand that, right? What Christ has done for me guarantees me of what he's promised to do in my future. Right? What, what, I, what I used to be should lead me to go praise you for who you've made me to be now and praise you for what you're going to do in my future. You understand, like, if I just become more aware of what I would be without him, okay? If I just, if I became more aware of what I used to be without him and I sat and thought about it, I would have such a deeper appreciation and value for what God has done and who he is now. And it would propel me into more faithfulness. That's why Christians grow stale and they sit on the sidelines. That's why there's no open Bibles. That's why there's Bibles collecting dust on the shelf and there's ministries that need to be tended to. That's why believers aren't being equipped and aren't fighting sin and taking it seriously. And they grow lazy and stale and cold and loveless because they lose sight of what they used to be. And they assume, I've always been here. You haven't. And you need to periodically remind yourself and look back. Don't stay there. Don't keep your head in your past. Don't live there. But let your past inform your present and your future. And go, Lord, thank you. Because if I don't periodically look back, if I don't, I will slowly over time lose the passion and the fire and the appreciation and the love that I once had for God. So verse 4 says, but God, but God. Okay, I used to be children of wrath, following the devil, living in sin, dead in sin, separated from God. You know, penalty, wrath, all this stuff, darkness, death, but God, but God being rich in mercy, but God being rich in mercy, not so God did that. No, but God, in spite of what you were, despite what you deserved, despite how you were living, despite how much you rejected and hated and rebelled and lived in sin and didn't want anything to do with God, despite all that. God was rich in mercy. Now, mercy means God withholds the bad I deserve. So being rich in that patient, long-suffering mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Why does God show mercy and 
you know, hold back the judgment we deserve. Well, he does that because he's gracious and he wants to offer us life. So God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Okay, why does God love me? If you read verse 1 through 3, it has nothing to do with what you bring to the table. God, you don't go, God loves me because I. No, no, no. God loves me because God. God loves me because he is gracious and kind. And I'm not inherently deserving of that love. And I did nothing to earn it. I didn't work for it. I could never have achieved it. He gives me the good gifts I do not deserve. In spite of the bad I should get. So he goes, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead. In our trespasses, separated, spiritually dead. Cut off from life. In sin, following the devil. Even while we were that. He made us alive with Christ. He made us alive with Christ. Why? Because he loved you anyway. So do I give God any reason to love me? And you might go, well, I'm an image bearer of God. That should make him love me. That's not why he loves you. It has nothing to do with your genetic makeup and DNA. And I'm in the image of God. He loves you because he chose to love you. Because he's kind and gracious. And the favor of God is the undeserved, unearned, unmerited kindness that he shows us in his love. Imagine, pass, this is what God has done. He passes by a child of wrath that is cut off from him, living in sin, destroying their own lives. And he goes, I'm going to make a way for you to come into relationship with me. This is why Romans 5.8 is one of my favorite verses. This is why Romans 5.8 is one of my favorite verses. God shows his love for us. Wow. God didn't do this. and he, he left me here and he didn't tell my parents. How about this? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While I was still dead in sin. While I was still separated. While I still had nothing to do with God and didn't want him. He said, I know. I'm going to die for you anyway. And Jesus willingly lays down his life to make way for this being made alive. A dead thing can't make itself alive. But I will tell you this, I'm not Calvinistic. So when I see we used to be dead in sin, all you have to understand is it's in the very beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. That was the death God promised. And physical death is a byproduct of that, the wasting away of the flesh, right? But Death, biblically, at its core, is I am not connected to or in the presence of the one who is life. That's what the garden represented. That's what the garden represented. So we were dead in our trespasses. And the Calvinists will take this so far to say, therefore, a dead thing doesn't even have the capacity or the ability to believe. That's not true. That's not even the kind of deadness we're talking about. We're not talking about non-existent without any kind of, you know, living breath. This is, I'm cut off from God, but I'm still walking around living in sin, following the devil. So clearly we have the capacity to choose to believe and obey or not. When we were dead, 
God made us alive together. Yeah, but God made you alive before you ever chose to believe. He regenerated you and that faith came to... Well, let's just read that, okay? If we're going to base that theology just off Ephesians 2, you're going to have a lot of uphill battles to fight, okay? God made us alive together. That doesn't say it was against your will. That doesn't say it was without your faith. That just says when we were dead, he made us alive. Well, how? By grace, you've been saved. By grace. What does grace mean? Again, undeserved, unearned, unmerited kindness and favor of God. What's the greatest demonstration of God's grace? His love for us on the cross when he stayed there and he didn't come down until it was finished. And he entered into our world and took on our frailty and our weakness and our dependency and our, and our brokenness and entered into our hopeless world. And he subjected himself to the law, born under the law, like Galatians says, at the fullness of time he came born of Mary. And he lives the perfect life none of us ever could in order to be the perfect blank canvas on the cross for sin to be poured out on. And he became sin who knew no sin because he was the perfect sacrifice that could atone for humanity's crimes. And our crimes deserve just penalty. He took that upon himself. And he was crucified. And he died our death. And then he conquered our death by raising to life. That's the only way any of us can be made alive with Christ. is because he's been made alive. He became our sin. He took our death. He lived the life we never could. And he conquered our death in our place and rose to life. Ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now I can follow in his footsteps. That's the only way. There's no other way to be made spiritually alive. Material beings can't concoct a method to, to you know, create spiritual life. If spiritual life is going to happen, there needs to be a spiritual method, a spiritual force behind that. I am material. I am a physical, limited, earth, dust being. I can't do anything that has to do with regenerating spiritual life. God does that to me. And the Calvinists will say, I love my Calvinist brothers, but they'll say, and that regeneration starts at, it's the, the very second. It's like the same thing. I'm believing I'm regenerated and I don't even have the capacity to believe until I'm regenerated. So technically some Calvinists will say, you have to be regenerated, made alive with Christ before you ever believe. Some people will say that. Not all Calvinist theology says that. But for me, I go, Okay, let's just read the text. By God's grace, you've been saved. Is the saving in response to something? Let's find out. And you were raised up with Christ. Remember when I said Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places? And when I said that last time, that there's a very intentional reason behind me emphasizing that so much. Because we're seated with him. We're seated with him. In the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. I'm only able to sit where Christ is. Because he made a way for me to be there. By his own blood. Now you're going to see a lot of temple language in the next coming sections. A lot of Old Testament temple, day of atonement, high priest kind of language. And you really need to pay attention. We are seated with Christ. Seated implies the high priest has finished his work. It's done. Is that not what Jesus said on the cross? It is finished. He's seated. I can sit with him 
and take refuge and rest in his finished work. And I can sit down and say, I am finished with you. You did it all. You did the heavy lifting. I rest in your work. I trust in you to get me into the kingdom. And I'm going to go and get to work in faith here on earth. I'm no longer working for what only God could give as a free gift. So we're seated with Christ. Where? In the heavenly places. How? Because you're positioned in Christ through your faith. Jesus locks you into himself, fills you with his spirit, so that where he is, there you are too. And so if he's been raised above all spiritual forces of darkness, I'm raised with him. And you go, why did God save? Why did God seed us? Why did God raise us? Why did God make us alive? Well, didn't it say because of the great love he had for us? But there's a purpose behind that love. Okay, so let me say it like this. The reason, the motivation behind God saving and making alive and raising and bringing us to life and seeding us with Christ, the motivation is his love. Okay? But the reason, the reason for loving us in that way, okay, is verse 7. It's so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. I am a walking, talking demonstration of God's abundant love and grace. I'm a walking example. I am a testimony. I'm a witness. As creation testifies of the creator, my life now in Christ is a testimony and a witness to the love and the grace of God. He has shown the immeasurable, infinite riches of his grace. How? By being kind toward us in Christ. So God shows kindness to us through his son. Through his son coming and living and dying and resurrecting and saving and rescuing us and adopting us into his family. The kindness of God is demonstrated in Christ Jesus. He is the epitome and the embodiment of kindness and love. That's who Jesus is. Now, verse 8, let's, let's pay attention to the same phrase he already said in verse 5, right? Verse 5, God says, or Paul says, on behalf of God, by grace you've been saved. What's being emphasized here? The grace of God. That's what's being emphasized here. You being saved, you being made alive, you being raised, and you being seated is by his grace. It's a gift. I don't get to decide what happens because of my faith. All I choose to do is believe, and God decides what he does in response to my faith. So when the gospel gets preached, and I hear the message, and I go, I believe, and I take God at his word, and I claim his promises that he'll save me, that he'll make me alive, that he'll rescue me from sin, that he'll forgive me and grant me a seat in heaven. I claim his promises, and I believe. But my faith, I don't get to decide what my faith results in. He does. And what has God decided my faith results in? He decides that when you believe, he's going to raise you up, make you alive, seat you with his son in heavenly places, and you will reign with Christ forevermore in the kingdom. He's decided to treat you like that. But that doesn't negate my choice to believe. 
I don't get to decide what God does in response to my faith. All I do is decide to believe or not. The Calvinist will say, eh, God kind of chooses you before you ever exist. And I go, brother, sister, like, let's keep reading. <sighs> By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Verse 8 repeats the same thing he said in verse 5. By grace, you've been saved. When you see a repeating clause like that, pay very close attention. The authors of the Bible are trying to get you to notice something. By grace, you've been saved. What does Paul want us to realize? By grace, we've been saved. Did I save myself? No. Did I make myself spiritually alive? Did I reconnect myself to God? Did I, did I seat myself in heavenly places? No. Did I believe and trust in God to do those things for me? Yeah. Does God get to choose what he does in response to my faith? 100 million percent. So God has graciously decided all of these rewards become yours. It's a package deal. Salvation is not just, I escape my sin. Thank God I'm not going to hell. Salvation is a package that includes reigning and ruling and adoption and forgiveness and regeneration and a new nature and a new relationship and a new heart and all this stuff that we forget because it's just about not going to hell nowadays. And Paul's saying, by grace, you've been saved through your faith. So how does God save? He saves through a person's faith in what his son has done. If a person does not believe, he does not save because they have rejected the free gift of salvation. God does not force it on people. He makes it available to all. But sadly, the Calvinist theology says, no, he forces it on some and the others are screwed. He never had a chance. And I don't appreciate that kind of theology for several reasons I'm sure you can think of. But all I'm saying is we've been saved through our faith. Faith is the method of salvation. How does it happen? Through you trusting in Christ. Why does God save? Because of his grace. Because of his grace. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Now, this is not your own doing. The gift, the Calvinist will say, applies to faith. Just because it was the last object or subject used in the sentence. Logically, and I don't have time to explain this, there's someone who's made a, a better video than I have. I don't remember their name. You can find them on YouTube. They go through the Greek, and the syntax, the structure of the Greek, does not at all imply that faith is the subject of this sentence. The this is what Paul has been demonstrating for the last several verses. This refers to your salvation, your being saved, your being seated, your being raised with Christ, your being made alive. The salvation package is a gift of God. Faith is not the gift because that would imply God gives the ability to be saved only to some and everyone else is screwed. 
And that seems to be very contrary to the nature and the character of God in Scripture. You've got a lot of hoops to jump through to get around that. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Salvation here. Not a result of works. Well, obviously, faith is not a result of my works. The Bible juxtaposes faith and works all the time. Obviously, faith is not a result of my works. The Calvinist theology says, no, believing is a meritorious work that you can take credit for. Really? Where is that in Scripture? Where is believing or trusting or faith explained as a work that I do? Where is faith a work that I can claim credit for and boast about? Faith is always juxtaposed to the works-based legalistic way of getting to God. So Paul's not going to repeat an idea that is implied within the definition of the word, right? By grace, you've been saved. This is not your own doing. Yeah, faith, uh, salvation is not my own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So apparently, if you're going to say the gift of God is faith, In my opinion, you would have to work through a lot of confusing ideas. By grace, you've been saved through your faith. Amen. This is not your own doing. The salvation God has chosen to grant you through your faith, that's not your own doing. It's not a result of works. But guess what? My faith was my choice. And my faith is not a, a work that I can be credited for or that I can boast about. No one can boast. Me trusting in Christ, me believing in Christ, is not a meritorious work that somehow God goes, Ah, yes, they did the heavy lifting. Now I can give them salvation. It's just the way in. It's just the way. How do you take refuge in someone you don't trust in? How do you claim promises that you don't believe in? That's why faith is the substance of things hoped for. So, either way, let's go to verse 10. We are his workmanship. We. Now, Paul's not talking about the individuals. He's talking about the church, we're going to see in a little bit, at large, which includes individuals. I get that. Okay? We are his workmanship. Who's his? God's. What's workmanship? Masterpiece. Okay? Now, a lot of people will take this to mean every human being that ever exists is the workmanship being referred to here. That's not what the context implies. And I'll show you why. I'll actually skip down to give you... A little sneak peek, okay? Verse 15. You know, Christ has abolished the ordinances to create in himself one new man in place of the two. Referring to Jew and Gentile. Jesus makes one new body, one new man or woman, one new humanity 2.0 in the place of the, of the Jew and Gentile that were separated from the Father. He makes a new creation in place of the two. Uh, how do I ignore these comments? I just ignore them. So when you go back to verse 9 or 10, and it says we're created in Christ Jesus, he's going to explain in verse 15 that we, the new, new humanity, right? New the church, essentially, has been created in Christ. He's created us in himself. So we're created in Christ for good works, 
if you didn't already know this, there are good works that are, are ordained for you to walk in. Okay? There are good works God desires for you to do. He's prepared for you to walk in. He's prepared for you to go and do. Now, that doesn't mean it's guaranteed. There's a lot of things God desires of His people to do that they choose not to do, and sometimes He moves them into it anyway. And So, the works God has for us, He's fitted us for. The good, the calling on your life, God has equipped you for. The purpose He wants you to walk in, that He's prepared for you, okay? He's created you for that. That's why you're recreated. That's why you're made a new creation in Christ, so that you're capable of actually doing the good works God has called you to. In my sin, separated from God, I cannot do the good works God has prepared for me. Now, when people say the good works were prepared beforehand, that proves Calvinism. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The good works just show you the ideal God has for his people, for us to walk in, and how he's created us new in Christ to walk in those good works. The works were prepared beforehand. That doesn't mean the person is shoved into a category against their will before they ever exist. It doesn't logically follow. So verse 11, to answer the overall question of, hey, should Christians periodically look back in their past? Or should they just move on completely into the future that God has for them? Well, I think if Paul's reminding the church where they used to be to propel them into the, the calling God has for them. And if he's about to say in verse 11, look, therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision. In other words, you were not welcome <laughs> into the fold because of your lack of connection to the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. You were not Jews like us. Sorry, you're not children of Abraham. You can't claim the promises of Abraham. So, verse 11, at one time, you Gentiles, Gentile just means non-Jew. You were not born an Israelite. You don't have Israelite blood flowing through your veins. Okay? Remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And Paul's using earthly labels. He's not actually submitting to these labels. He's working with the titles of the culture, right? He's working with the labels of the culture and going, look, at one time, the Israelites who are called the circumcision, right? Because they descend from Abraham and they have the sign of circumcision. They used to call you Gentiles, the uncircumcision, which was a demeaning term. And it's just made in the flesh by hands. Now, Paul, I'm a believer now. Why are, you trying to, why are you telling me to remember my past? I shouldn't remember where I used to be. Apparently, Paul wants the church to remember where they used to be for a specific reason. And remembering isn't the same as living in. Okay, I don't, I don't stay in that place. I periodically recall that place. Okay, because it fuels the fire and helps me appreciate where I am now, lest I grow prideful like Israel. In the Old Testament. So verse 12 says, remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, 
You know how believers can grow arrogant and self-righteous and judgmental and look down on other unbelievers who are not in the fold and they're rejecting the gospel and, ugh, pitiful sinners. When you forget where Jesus pulled you out of, you can find yourself wandering into self-righteous judgment and pride and arrogance and entitlement. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to spare us from by helping us stay humble, by periodically looking back and going, that's where I came from. Praise you, Lord. Help me to have humility and gentleness and love for the people who are where I used to be. This is, this is a huge, huge issue in the church. Knowledge puffs up. Remember, you were separated from Christ. I'm just saying, Paul is using, framing this up as a command. To say, look, remember, you were cut off from the Israelites. Remember, you were separated from Christ. Remember, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember, you were strangers, foreigners, to the promises and the covenants of God. You didn't have a share in the Abrahamic covenant through circumcision. You didn't have a share in the Mosaic covenant through the law. You didn't have a share in the Israelite nation through the sacrificial system and the high priest and the day of atonement and the temple. You weren't a part of those promises and covenants. At one time, you were completely cut off. And you had no hope in without God in the world. Now, this doesn't mean God never worked with Gentiles. This means as a whole, the typical norm was that all of the promises given to Abraham were for his physical descendants. And the Gentiles didn't have a real share in that. Now, obviously, in hindsight, we look back and go, that wasn't true. And the Jews misunderstood. And the way God was working, they were completely unaware of because they refused to submit to his ways. So we were without hope, without God in the world. Now, now look at this. If you are cut off from Jesus, look at the phrase he uses. You have no hope. You have no hope. In other words, you have no real reason, no substantial essence for hope. There's no legitimate reason for hope apart from Christ. Now, that doesn't mean your life can't change and improve and I can't climb up the corporate ladder and get a new house and get a new wife. You can get all that stuff. You can make progress. You can explode your business. You can blow up on YouTube. You can get famous and influence and tons of money in the bank and never sick. None of that has anything to do with real substantial hope that goes beyond this life. Because at the end of the day, we all die. I don't just need hope for tomorrow. I need hope beyond death. And if you're separated from Christ, you don't have that. You don't have hope beyond death. Just like I used to be. You're screwed. Until Christ comes in, into your heart and gives you salvation and you believe. Well, you believe first and salvation comes. But the point is, you are called to believe. But look at where we used to be. Now remember, this is, to, this is to stimulate love in us. This should grow our love for God and people by remembering where I used to be. Man, I was cut off from Israel. I wasn't a part of the promises, even though technically the promises to Abraham were for, for his spiritual seed and those who would have his faith. But nonetheless, I had no hope. 
I was without God. I was an alien to the covenants of God and his presence in the temple. I was, I was just on the outside. And outside of Israel, there's nothing but, you know, what they call the domain of, of the enemy. Whatever pagan gods you fall into and worship, whatever demons you submit to, outside of God's territory, Yahweh's territory of Israel, there's nothing but darkness and barrenness. It's a wasteland. You and I were in that. Here's that but now again. It's like a repeat of verse 4. Remember when Paul builds the sadness and goes, remember what you used to be? And you're like, I'm crying, Paul, stop. He goes, but God. But God shined the light in your darkness. Same thing, verse 13. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, primarily, thank you, Paula, what Paul is concerned with here is essentially the temple in Israel, Jerusalem, symbolized the presence of God in the midst of Israel. It was his physical domain in which he chose to dwell and be worked with, okay? So if you are separated from the temple and far from the temple, well, in the mind of the ancient Jew, you were separated from, far off from Yahweh, and you had no share. Without the temple system, there's no real way to relate with God in the, in the old covenant. Why it's tabernacle and then temple and then it gets destroyed and then temple again. There's no real way to relate with God according to his stipulations without the temple. Now, when Paul says you were far off and now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, if you go to Leviticus and Exodus, the high priest would always draw near to the presence of Yahweh on the day of atonement. Go into the Holy of Holies with incense to block their vision so they don't actually see anything they shouldn't, right? With blood, not their own, from bulls and goats. And, and they shed the blood, spill the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And the Ark symbolized the presence of God among His people. You had the tablets of the testimony, you had Aaron's bud. And so in that Ark, you couldn't approach the Holy of Holies unless you were one person, the high priest. You couldn't go near to God unless it was on one specific day, the Day of Atonement. You had to be one person on one specific day, and it had to be with blood, or you cannot come through and press through the veil, or you will get destroyed. Okay, and we don't have time to get into the blood theology and stuff like that. The point is, the life is represented by the blood, and sin demands life. Sin results in loss of life. So to approach Yahweh as a sinful creature covered in sin, which God cannot dwell with because his goodness obliterates sin and darkness, to approach the living God required blood. So when Paul says, now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, what he's saying is, you no longer have to rely on a high priest to go into the temple for you on a specific day with blood that's not his own. You have a greater high priest who has shed his own blood, which is more than enough to cover all of humanity's sins. And that great high priest doesn't keep you out. He brings you in. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. As a Christian Gentile, I have more access to God 
than the unbelieving Jew ever did. The Jew, the Israelite who trusted in the temple system and stuff, they only had the temple to relate to God with through sacrifices. and They could only go on the outskirts and bring the sacrifices. Now, I actually can go in. I don't ask Moses to go up on Mount Sinai. I can go up there myself through the blood of Christ. Do you, do you see what God has done? He's brought you near. He doesn't want you far off. He's brought you near. He doesn't want you dead. He makes you alive. He doesn't want you separated. He brings you close by the blood of his son. Now, verse 14, Jesus himself is our peace. Not only do you not have hope without Christ, you cannot, it's, it's legitimately impossible to have real, substantial peace without Christ. He is our peace. So if I don't have him, if I'm not connected to him, I don't have peace because he's the essence of peace. To have a right relationship with God is to have peace. If I'm disconnected from God by my sin, I have no real reason for peace in this life. But if Christ has brought me near by his blood, and now I can stand holy and righteous in the presence of the Almighty and be welcomed as his beloved son or daughter, if I can stand before him welcomed, not stained by sin, but holy, I now have reason for peace. And he has made us both one. Lost my place. He's made us both one. Who's us? Well, that one who is far off, the Gentile, and that one who is physically near, the Jew. He's made us both one. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What primarily kept the Gentiles out? What kept the, 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 you know, the non-Jews out of you know, the covenants with Abraham and David and, and Moses. What kept them out from being the people of God? Now, foreigners could come in and, and, you know, take on certain elements of the covenant and stuff. And I think there's a degree to which it was believed that a Gentile could have a portion or a share. But it doesn't, never the fullness because they're not physical descendants from Abraham. So what kept us out? Well, what kept us out was the veil. What kept us out was the temple system. What kept us out was our sin and the sacrificial lambs that needed to be shed and the blood that needed to be brought into the temple. What kept us out was the institution of the priesthood that said only the priest can serve God. What kept us out was the ordinances and the ceremonial laws of cleanness and uncleanness and the dietary laws. And you can't go in there on that day and you got to do this and you got to wear these bells. All these laws that foreshadow Christ, these ordinances and ceremonial laws and rituals and the temple veil, Christ himself removed by his flesh. And Hebrews tells us we actually get to approach Yahweh through the flesh of Christ, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I enter through the gate. And Jesus says, I'm the gate. I'm the way in. I'm the door. Enter through me, through my broken body, through my shed blood. That's what Christ invites us to. No one else can enter the presence of God at all without Jesus. It doesn't happen. 
You can't get there. So the veil is torn to symbolically note that, look, anyone can have access to God's presence now. You don't have to go in. He's coming out to you. He tore down the wall of hostility. Why is it a wall of hostility? Because he's using this as an antithesis to peace. He's going, look, you have peace in Christ, but while the old covenant was in, you know, in, in place, and while you had the sacrificial system and the veil keeping you out, there was a sense of hostility between Jew and Gentile, Jew and Samaritan. In other words, the temple system became a point of pride for the Israelites. And it made them self-righteous to look down on anyone who didn't descend from Abraham physically. So what Jesus does is he becomes sin when he knew no sin. He becomes the essence of our darkness on the cross where he hangs there and he stays. And he takes the full force of God's righteous wrath that I was under, but he came under and stood in the gap for me. Not because God's an angry God and he's just looking to punish people. My separation from God, Jesus took upon himself and he broke down that wall. Hebrews tells us he tore the veil and he is now the way in. Why did he do this? Remember when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. What's verse 15 then? It says he abolished the law. It's not a contradiction. He's like, he goes on. <laughs> uh, Jesus in his flesh abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So he didn't remove the law. He didn't do away with everything revolving around the law. What he removed were those dimensions that kept us out. The moral law of God is fulfilled in Christ. The ceremonial and civil law of God is fulfilled in Christ. And by doing so, he removes the sacrificial system and the ceremonial laws and the unclean and clean rules and the dietary laws. He removes it all. So it's not about outward cleanness anymore and traditions and ordinances and rituals and blood. It's about the inward cleansing. So the purpose is Jesus creates you're supposed to think Genesis, God creating the universe. Well, now Jesus is the one creating in himself one new humanity. Adam actually is often just used of humanity, man and woman. It doesn't have to be gender oriented. Just one new humanity in place of the two. The two what? Jew and Gentile. In other words, whether you are Jewish or Gentile. If you are unbelieving, you're screwed. If you believe, you come into Christ and you become a part of the new humanity, one in Christ, okay? So he takes the two, and if you're a believing Jew or believing Gentile, you're created in Christ as a new creation to be his body, as new humanity. And so, making peace. Jesus makes peace not just between us and God but he makes peace between us and each other so that now Jesus is my reason for peace between anyone on the planet at any given moment. Doesn't mean I can make people live at peace with me, 
but I always have reason to pursue and maintain peace with others. And Jesus is that reason. He's given me reason to pursue peace with others. And now, he might reconcile us both to God. Reconcile there is this idea of rescuing, bringing back to the original condition. Purchasing back is re redemption, is reconciling, is, a, is like a, when, a, when a son is kidnapped and then a father is restored back to his son and the son is brought home. Or let's say a, a, a better analogy would be a, a son walks away in anger, hates his family, wants nothing to do with them for years. And he comes back in sorrow and wants to restore the relationship. The, 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 the father and the son have been reconciled. This carries relationship dimensions. You and I were hostile to God, rebellious, children of wrath, angry, wanted nothing to do with the father. The prodigal son is a good example, okay? And we're reconciled back to God. He restores the relationship that was corrupted in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they distorted and ruined their relationship with the Creator. Because Psalm chapter 5 says, No evil can dwell in the presence of God. So therefore, they were exiled out of the garden. And we're not just reconciled back to, father, back to the Father in the same condition that we fell from. We're actually restored back to God in a completely newer and better way than Adam and Eve had. Now, that doesn't mean Adam and Eve and God's setup with that whole shindig was, was, was flawed. It just means what Christ does is reconcile us to a higher and better degree that eliminates what happened in the garden. And there's, a, there's a number of reasons. Maybe one day I'll have to make a video on why what we have now is better than what Adam and Eve had. But he reconciled us back to God in one body through the cross. Through his cross. He kills the hostility. Now that's an interesting way of saying, hey, Jesus removed any hostility between you and God and between you and each other. He, de he destroyed it. That's interesting. He killed the hostility. And apparently his body is the representation of that hostility on the cross. Because what died on the cross? Well, the body of Christ. And sin was embodied by Christ on that cross so that sin was, was done away with, with him. Right? So when I trust in Jesus, I die to sin the way sin in the body of Christ was destroyed on the cross. And, you know, not removed, but made powerless, rendered powerless. So the hostility here is rendered powerless through the body of Christ on the cross. When he died, sin died, hostility died, and death itself died with him. And Jesus came and he preached peace. I love that. Jesus comes and preaches peace to those who were far off, remember the non-Jews, and he preached peace to those who were near. And you go, I thought Jews had peace with God. No. No. Jews had more reason to have peace with God, but they didn't actually pursue that peace and actually believe and obey and trust. Uh, it proved to be, they proved to be rebellious children 
that didn't want their father. <laughs> Most of them, at least. There's a lot of Jews that ended up being saved during the, during the time of the prophets, during the time of Christ. But the point is, those who had a close proximity to the temple still needed peace because they couldn't go in through the veil. And Jesus removes that hostility. For through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, watch this, we both have access in the same spirit to the same Father. So now, Jew and Gentile, you and us, all of us together as believers, we have more in common. We have more reason to unite than we have to divide and be hostile towards each other and disagree politically and disagree on different laws and disagree on well, what this scripture says and this doctrine. We have more reason. If you believe the simple gospel and you believe in the same historical biblical Christ that I do, we have the same spirit. We have access to the same God. We have the same redeeming Savior. We have the same access. That, that's why I said, listen carefully to the temple language. It's subtle. It's very subtle. But the access here is hearkening back to the temple. Who had access to the Holy of Holies? The high priest. When? Day of Atonement. How? Not without blood. Not without the garments. Not without the incense. Not without the appropriate attire and... And, and cleansings, he only had access once a year. We now have access to God at any time. At any time. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Who testifies to the fact that we are children of God. Now verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers. Do you notice how Paul builds he goes, look at what you used to be. Look at what God did. Remember what he, you used to be. Now look at what he did. It, it's a pattern. It's a pattern. As I grow more confident in who he's made me to be, I should also be simultaneously, not a lot, but periodically recalling who I used to be so I don't grow prideful or familiar or entitled to who I am now. And then as I grow and make progress and mature and fight the good fight and see more transformation and get closer to God, lest I grow familiar and prideful, I should remember where I used to be. That's why I think there's a biblical precedent for believers to remember periodically in their prayer time or as they're walking through life. Recall where Jesus pulled you out of. Remember what you used to be without him. Otherwise, you slowly lose value and appreciation for who you are and what he's done now. And I think that's dangerous. And I think Israel sets a pattern and, a, and a, really a, a, a demonstration for us that you can have fantastic things happen to you and forget about them so quickly that you wander into an even greater darkness. And that's exactly what Israel demonstrates time and time again. And I'm not saying as believers we can forfeit and every, reject and lose our salvation. The point is, Israel, Old Covenant, it functions differently than the New Covenant. So I'm not making a perfect parallel there. The parallel that I am showing is that Israel took for granted what God did for them. And find, found themselves wandering and feeling entitled and growing self-righteous. And that is still true for a believer. 
I can, if I don't check myself, I can grow entitled and think I deserve this. I've always been this. No, you, you didn't. You didn't always have access to the Father. You weren't always near to God. You weren't always filled with the Spirit. You weren't always at peace with God. You weren't always created as a new you know, humanity in Jesus. That, that wasn't always what you were. And you need to remember that. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. I, I, you know when you go somewhere you clearly don't belong? That's what it used to be for Gentiles to, to try and enter into like the ways of Israel. It's like, clearly I don't belong here. I don't physically descend from Abraham. I know I have no connection to these promises, but I'll try and like get in how I can. It's, you're clearly a stranger and an alien, and it's awkward. But that's not what we are anymore. In other words, what I used to be is no longer what I identify as now. But I can still remember it without it creeping in and, and starting to form how I think about myself. I shouldn't let my past inform how I view myself. But I should let my past uh, produce in me a thankfulness for who I am now. Thank God I'm not that anymore. Praise the Father that I'm nothing like what I used to be. Praise Him. Like, hallelujah, that He did the impossible and he called me out of what I could never claw myself out from on my own. He did it. And I'm no longer an alien, a stranger. I am a, we are fellow citizens. In other words, we belong. We belong. This is your identity. I am a fellow citizen of the kingdom of God. I belong in my father's house. I'm not entitled to it. I'm not privileged. I don't deserve it, but he gave it to me anyway. So I'm going to choose to believe what he says about me, not about what my past tells me I, I am. Uh, my past doesn't get to tell me who I am. Only God gets to do that. And that confidence in who Jesus has made me to be allows me to look back in my past without being influenced to the point where I think I am my sin. I'm not. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. We are holy and blameless. And, and read Ephesians 1 for your identity. Fellow citizens with the saints, referring to the Old Testament saints and prophets and patriarchs, we are members of the household of God. Household language is huge for this culture. Household language. You belong in this family. You bear the name of your father. You are a beloved child. You have access to everything Jesus has won for you. He gives you access to his inheritance. It's yours. You are members. fellows. You're not just citizens of the kingdom of God. You are members of his family. That's the language. You're not just in his house like, I'm just trying to sweep the floors. Please don't hurt me. You're his beloved child. You belong in his house. You belong there because he made way for you to be there. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Don't forget, someone else's difficult labor made way for what we have today. And the apostles and the prophets and Jesus himself, his sacrifice, is what I'm standing on. We're built on someone else's hard work and sacrifice. We didn't just get here. What we have now is centuries 
centuries of laboring and God producing and working with a disobedient nation and reconciling and saving and sending his son, uh, the narrative is not finished, but it finds its culmination in Christ. And we're built on him. Now you go, what? I thought we're the family of God. Why does he make us sound like, like we're a building? Because we are. Remember how I said pay attention to the temple language? Christ himself is the cornerstone. Like the one that the entire building rests on. You pull that cornerstone out, the building comes toppling down. He's the most important piece. In whom the whole structure... So in Christ, because he's the cornerstone holding this thing together, in Jesus, we as the building of God are being joined together. How are we joined together? Well, we're joined in Christ. When you believe in Jesus, you take refuge in him, you're positioned in him, and everyone else who believes is also positioned in him. You're joined as one church, one body, one building in Jesus. He's the glue that holds us together, his spirit. And we grow into a holy temple in the Lord. We grow into a holy temple in the Lord. Remember how I said pay attention to the, pay attention to the temple language? What is Paul wanting us to see? It's not about going to a location anymore. There's no physical temple anymore. We as the people of God on earth right now, we are the spiritual temple of God. And we're built on Christ as the cornerstone. And the Spirit of God fills me. The, the temple is only the temple because God's presence abides there. When you remove the presence of God from the temple, there's no longer sacred spiritual you know, uh, significance there. So if the Spirit of God fills us, we become temples because of his filling. It's what happens as a result. So we collectively, as the church, are now the living temple of God. We are the mobile temple of God. It used to be fixed in one location. You'd have to go there, bring stuff. Now the temple of God is mobile, right? We're on wheels. We're across the whole planet. Interesting. Didn't God commission Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Didn't God have to start with one physical location for his presence to dwell in, to work with a nation, to bring about the Messiah, who would eventually make temples across the whole earth? Hmm. It's almost like God's bringing us back to the original calling and commission of humanity. Matthew 28 is a, is a, is a parallel to Genesis chapter 1. So we are growing into a holy temple. Now notice... Even as we're growing and progressing and getting stronger, we are not any less the temple of God. We're still the temple as we're growing, as we're failing, as we're fighting, as we're struggling, as we endure difficulty, as we experience doubts. We're still the temple because we're in Christ. That's the point. You are only the temple because of who you abide in. That's your identity. Like you're, you're now the mobile temple of God commissioned to go and bring his presence in the earth. Think about how sacred and how holy the temple was for the Israelites. There was one place God chose to, you might say, 
dwell among humanity. And there are hot spots, you might say, throughout the narrative of the Old Testament. But he chooses to put his feet up and put a place in the ground and say, I'm going to plant myself here in Israel, here in Jerusalem. There's one spot. It was the temple. It was so sacred, so holy. You would not find God anywhere else. That doesn't mean he doesn't fill the earth. There's one place he chose. Heaven and earth would intersect. And it was the temple. Uh, the, you might say, if you don't want to get new agey and weird, the portal between heaven and earth would be the temple. Now, we as believers are the intersection between heaven and earth. Why? Because we're of the dust. We're on the earth right now. And the spirit who is of heaven has come down and invaded our reality, filled us with the spirit. And now, just like Genesis, or, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 says, okay, God's plan is to unite heaven and earth. Where is it? Verse 10 of chapter 1, Ephesians says, God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God always wanted to dwell among his people. We are now the intersection between heaven and earth. We are the first of new creation. We're the first of heaven and earth colliding. We're the temple now. That should cause you to really stop, praise God, and ask him to help you live a serious life. If there was that much sacredness and holiness and reverence attached to the temple, how do you think we ought to see our own lives now that we are the temple of God? How much reverence and sacredness and seriousness should be attached to how we live? In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So am I still the temple as I'm becoming more and more like Christ? Sure. Am I becoming and living more as a, an appropriate temple as I grow in Christ? Yeah. Like the more I know Jesus, the more I grow up, the more appropriately I will live. I will function more like a mobile temple of God. Like, like, like I'm a vessel of God's spirit. I'll function more like that the closer I get to him. But in the meantime, I am still who God says I am. And that doesn't change even as we grow even as we're being built up, even as we're maturing and growing into a holy temple. I am still who God calls me to be and says I am. So there's a freedom here to just enjoy and rest in who God has made you to be while pursuing a maturity and a growth that helps you to live more appropriately as a temple. As a temple. A mobile temple of God. This is cool. For me, this is this is where I nerd out and go, Lord, you've always had a plan. You've always intended to do the impossible. You didn't want to stop with Israel. You made way for the nations through Israel. Praise your holy name, Father. Thank you. In him, you're being built together into a dwelling place. You might say, God is making us a more appropriate house as we grow up and are transformed. He's making it homey. <laughs> The Spirit of God is removing things that don't belong and filling us with things that do belong. So in closing, just so you guys know, we're going to jump on a Zoom call at 11.35. That's in seven minutes from now. So look at your time. 
go, what's plus seven minutes? Add seven minutes, okay? And then what I want you to do is set an alarm, set a timer for seven minutes. We're gonna jump on our Zoom prayer room call. We're gonna actually take communion today, talk through a few things, fellowship together, enjoy communion and um, relationship. Seven minutes, set a timer. We're gonna jump on. If you want the Zoom link, click my TikTok profile or look in the YouTube description below and you're gonna see a link. It's gonna say Zoom link. Click it, the password is Jesus and we'll be on there in about seven minutes. In the meantime, while you're waiting, go and check out AboveReproachMinistry.com. You'll find our podcast. You'll find our YouTube channel. You're already on it. You'll find our Patreon. You'll hit me up on Instagram. You can. You don't have to. Um, you can find um, our Discord community. You can find my book, Fruitful, which is the essential keys to living out the most abundant life. Um, you can take our free Bible study program, which I'm slowly going through. And look, if you want to join the Zoom and turn your camera off and turn off your mic, that's cool. Do it. Uh, you don't have to interact. You can just be there like a fly on the wall and be weird. And uh, if you're watching this in the future on YouTube, I apologize. You missed it. You can get the next one, though, if we're still, do still doing this in the future. All right, guys. And if you'd like to give to this ministry, this is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids who are real. <laughs> They're not fake. I'm not 12. And um, this is the way God has called me to provide for them. If you want to invest into this and and help me create free content across the planet that's available to anyone, like the free Bible study program and, and trainings and curriculums and worksheets and the podcast and, and the community and all this, okay? It requires a lot. And this isn't easy. This isn't easy. So if you'd like to give one time through Cash App or PayPal or Venmo, do it. Uh, if God is leading you to be a monthly supporter and really be a part of this community financially uh, on a consistent basis, you can do so through Patreon and be a monthly supporter. And you get exclusive access to like tons of different benefits. You get access to my sermon notes, my teaching material. Um, you get discount codes on church merch, above reproach apparel. Always got to wave the shirt. You get a copy of my book, a digital copy of my book based on the tier you sign up with. So all these benefits I just want to make available to you as a thank you for signing up and helping me take care of my family and grow this ministry and reach people. Because people are being reached, I promise. This isn't for nothing. And um, I'll see you guys in five minutes, okay? Jump on the Zoom call. Password is Jesus. I will see you guys there. Bye, guys.